0: This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit
1: dauntless.fm for more content.
0: We have enemies within our country.
2: I think it's a combination of demonology and psyop.
1: The citizens are gonna rise up and become deputized. I have always heard President Trump. I, I like the way he talked. He remind me of most men. Joe Biden last night in the debate, he's, it's like he's not even a human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represented extremism. Can you imagine repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane defined God. And look. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White-Hodge. Hey, hey, profane faithers out there in the land. How we doing, fam? How we doing? How we doing? How we doing? All right. Well, uh, in the words of DJ Love from uh, "Do the Right Thing," played by the one and only Samuel Jackson, "Wake up, wake up, wake up, up! You wake up, you wake up, you wake." Right? Yeah, something like that. Have you ever seen uh, "Do the Right Thing"? Um, Why not? Why the hell not? Um, amazing film, uh, probably the capstone work of uh, Spike Lee, the writer and director uh, who had a role as Mookie in that film. I show that film, and especially for those of you who have taken me for intercultural comm, I've shown that film now for Two decades. Um, It's usually the final film uh, in the class looking at hostility and intercultural communication and, of course, racism. I feel like uh, Do the Right Thing really captures so much of where we're at in society it's it's you know it's a little hard to interpret the film if you're just watching it for pure like entertainment value right in a lot of early works of Spike Lee uh his work you know it, it it wasn't just to be watched like you would go watch a Marvel movie right um, there was there are a lot of points a lot of layers a lot of different levels as well um but a lot were argue especially Um, just the way it was just the cinematography alone, the colors, um, the lighting, uh, the use of space, the use of Dutch angles, uh, which connotes oftentimes hostility, all of those things, uh, were important, uh, to really shaping that story, that narrative. Um, and some predictions there as well. Um, this was filmed in Bedsty, uh, 1988. Uh, and I got the criterion edition. And you know, for those of you who are really extra nerds, um, I always recommend getting the criterion edition of your favorite movie. Uh, I've got that, uh, I got several Criterion editions, one of Donnie Darko as well, which is another great film, um, to really get into. Um, but uh, yeah, do the right thing. And so the second disc. Uh, literally has I didn't know Spike documented all of his early films, like literally from start to finish, from the st- opening day of shooting all the way until uh, closing. Um, and so he, b- that's basically what that is. It's uh, walk. It's all the walkthroughs. It's all the rehearsals. Um, the problems they incurred, and one of the, p- the points they brought up uh, in that film, "Do the Right Thing," is. Gentrification. Uh, there was a scene there where um, Bug Eye, played by uh, the none and only Giancarlo Esposito, you probably know him as Gus from uh, Los Pollos Hermanos in Breaking Bad. Um, and so, yeah, that was, I think, I believe that was his first role. Uh, there's a white guy wearing a Celtics shirt that uh, passes him up and bumps his shoe without even saying, excuse me, or I'm sorry. And, and uh, what ensues is a, is a, is a bit of a verbal art altercation. Uh, but the point Spike was trying to make with this was that the neighborhood was changing. Uh, and this was in 1988, 1989. Now, as you know, Brooklyn Bed-Stuy is predominantly white. Um, it is not a, Uh, In fact, uh, looks like uh, worldpopulation.org is reporting a uh, white population of Brooklyn um, at this point in 2023 is 49.5%. Um, and that's a major shift uh, from that era when I think it was an 85, 90% African-American. African-Americans only make up 35.8% um, of the ethnic population in that community. Um, so that's just one of the many points that Spike is, is trying to bring home to you in regards to you know the world is changing, and so much of right art and fiction uh, turns into nonfiction, right? Um, and in Spike, it really kind of uh, wove an entire, really a, a snapshot of where the country was and still is at. Um, police brutality, police beatings, um, white-owned property. That's the whole thing with Sal's Pizzeria, you know, when, when Bug Eye is asking him, like, hey, Mookie, you know, how come there ain't no brothers up on the wall? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, uh, he you know, it's talking about representation. These are the things that we talk about all the time, right? It's like, how come there weren't this? How come, you know, how come when you have a film about the Bible, all the characters are white, right? So these are the type of things that, um, yeah, that he... Was messing with Uh, One of the things to note uh, That I thought was interesting as well Again, Criterion Edition And just interviews that he's put together um, Over the years Because this thing And it still remains in the top 15 Top 10 most controversial movies um, uh, That, uh, and I believe in 2018, 2019 they did a what is it, a thirty year I believe um, uh, you know celebratory thing, uh, you know about the movie and stuff and um, but yeah it uh, but well one of the points that I was trying to make was that you know there, the whole issue with religion uh, Spike specifically didn't tackle a few things and that one he didn't tackle like drugs and drug addiction uh, specifically that was you know left out uh, the issue of gangs street gangs that was another thing that was that was left out as well specifically uh, he wanted he knew what he the story that he was trying to tell. But uh, one of the notes, interesting notes, is that uh, during this time uh, when they showed up to the community because, you know, it was a low-income community, a neighborhood, uh, Spike uh, came in, you know, a year prior to filming and, you know, really wanted to revitalize that community and... You, they knew they were going to build a set there, right? So you think about Sal's Pizzeria. Uh, that whole thing was built from scratch. They literally laid the tile, put in the, the oven, the whole nine. All that stuff was there uh, that they built. And when they came in, they wanted to work with the church, the Christian church, the black Christian church in that community. Um, and for those of you who remember, uh, this was right around the time uh, when uh, Martin Scorsese dropped that movie. Um, what was it? The Last Temptation, right, uh, of Jesus uh, potentially right, having, you know, sold his royal oats. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And the Christian evangelical community went Freaking bonkers, man. It was fucking crazy, right? People, you know, I mean, you know how they do. You know how evangelicals do, right? Yeah, just go after Hollywood, right? And so there was this disdain that the black church had also come in contact, uh, you know, with colonized white evangelical theology and then rejected Spike. Um, but the community and the or the religious community that did step up was, of course, the Nation of Islam. Uh, they helped people get off crack in that community who ended up working on the set. In fact, one of the characters, Smiley, um, it, you'll see him throughout the film. He wasn't originally cast in that film. He wasn't originally uh, a part of uh, that whole thing. And so you'll see him sporadically put out throughout the you know throughout the whole film. And uh, he was just one of those cats. He was a struggling actor, struggling black actor, literally ran up on the set and just bugged Spike until he got that part. <laughs> you know, and he plays, you know, uh, like uh, a character that, you know, has some... some uh, uh, some mental deficiencies, and um, but is still very keenly aware of the discrimination that exists uh, in that community. So, going back to religion, Spike in the opening scenes, in fact, when Stanley is um, talking about Malcolm and Martin, which dealing with two different and very yet very similar ideological structures uh, that really have helped shape the African-American narrative and diaspora um, over the last 50, 60 years. Um, and so Spike wanted to put that in there. And so Smiley's talking about it, but if you notice the angle, and this is what I'm saying, you got to go back and watch the film. If you notice the angle that, um, that Spike took with that, Um, Smiley is standing in front of a black Baptist church doors are closed lights are off everything is that again this is kind of just a little little clap back right uh, to the black church in that community that wouldn't work with them so he's standing outside of the um, of the church and that was the only other time that really God was you know in terms of religion was mentioned now. There was a picture of the Pope, uh, I think it was Pope John Paul II, third. I can't remember. Forgive me, you uh, hardcore Catholic folks out there listening. Um, at the time, this was during the 80s, 1988, there was a picture of him uh, over the left shoulder um, of Sal in a couple of different scenes, in the opening scenes, opening uh, part. And that yeah, was really just to emphasize kind of the... First generation, second generation ethnic minority immigrants, uh, Italian ethnic minority immigrants, you know, who largely came over and were, in mass, Catholic. Um, so, yeah, so there's your. Um your uh, your film breakdown. Uh, I've shown that film so much. I wish I could be on a panel to 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 just talk about it. I've shown it so much and learned so much from it that it's just become, you know, second nature to talk about it. Um, and really the depth of how black directors and writers, especially this was produced by Universal Studios uh, at a time when. Black directors and writers—they didn't get those those opportunities where you were the the one who was calling. In fact, uh, again going a little film history here, um, it was filmed on location in Bed Stuy, uh, in New York, but Universal Studios was like come on, man, this is, you know, kind of, this is going to be too much to film. Like, let's just take this. We have a whole backlog If you know anything about, you know, Universal Studios back lot in Hollywood, uh, they have, uh, you know, a, a, a setup that looks very reminiscent to a New York uh, city environment. You've seen it in tons of movies, tons of television shows. If you're a Seinfeld nut like myself. Um, It is constantly, I think there's only a handful of episodes that they actually filmed in New York on Seinfeld. Uh, But they use the Universal Studios backlog. Warner Brothers uses it, a whole bunch of people use it. So, you know, that was, I mean, imagine being, this is your, what, second film, I think? I think uh, School Days was his first. This is his second film, uh, fresh out of, um, you know, film school. And here you stand. you know, he basically dug his feet in and was just like, nah, we're not going to film uh, in the back lot. And they agreed. <laughs> they agreed. Um, and I I, I thank him for it. I mean, that, you know, that, that the set made the film. The set uh, was a character in and of itself. Um, and all the things that come down again... White-owned property, uh, you're dealing with, that at the time, a uh, strong dissonance between, uh, Korean-American, um, Korean-Americans and African-Americans, right? That was particularly going on on both coasts, both New York and in Los Angeles, uh, um, it was part of the uprisings and stuff in 92, which I've talked about plenty on this show, um, that yeah, that uh, there was those relationships were bad. So you know he's talking about that. He's talking about the mom and pop stores that come in. There's commentary on it. You got the cat sitting in there. You know Robin Harris who plays Pops. Um, you know he's he you know he's in there uh, as well. You know talk you know talking about it. now. It's kind of a a commentary if you will um, in regards to some of those relationships. But nonetheless, Spike knew what he was doing, right? Robin Harris at the time. If you don't know, uh, was, uh, you know, a large black comic. Uh, he was he was funny. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away uh, much too soon, in in my opinion. But, um, yeah, he was in that film as well. Um, I'm trying to think as Ozzie Davis, he was the mayor. Um, Ozzie Davis and uh, Ruby Dee, uh, who both, uh, rest their souls, um, uh, were in that movie as well. They kind of played uh, opposites throughout the film because the mayor, played by Ozzy Davis, is, you know, a drunk. Um, But but he's got so much more of a richer and thicker story. There's a generational divide that he's talking about. At that point, we're talking about black Gen X uh, young kids, you know, talking back To the builders and the boomers, the civil rights generation. And so Ozzy is sharing that hurt, that pain of what was going on, and the younger generation not getting it. So don't let people fool you that, oh, this new generation is, uh, you know, they're, uh, what do they call them, entitled and this. Don't get me wrong, there's some entitlement. But every generation has that. (laughs) It's not just, you know, a relic and a novelty for Gen Z. Um, every generation has that. So uh, this in the end, we see that we see that Gen X and Boomer generation, civil rights generation uh, still to this day struggle in their relationship. Uh, so Ruby D was in there. Of course, Giancarlo uh, Esposito. Bill Nunn, God rest his soul. He was Radio Raheem. Uh He also has passed on as well. Um there's there, there's just there's a lot there's a lot in in this film so I highly recommend it and and really what you should do uh, is pause this go watch do the right thing you know if you're cheap and you ain't got a lot of money I understand. Uh, I believe you can go to YouTube, and if you just do a little research, you can actually find the whole movie in parts. But, but you can see the whole thing uh, for free um, and whatnot. Or you can rent it for like two, three bucks. Um, I know it's, it's real cheap. It's what I usually tell my students. Hey, can you believe I was actually going to take that film out of rotation after Obama was elected? Can you believe that mess? I was like, well... You know, and this was before uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, more concurrent uprisings uh, that were starting to happen. This was right at the kind of the dawn and wake of Trayvon Martin. That's kind of what was I was like, well, maybe not, Um, because it felt like at that time, some of those things were like behind us. right? Some of those things were were back there. And then, of course, 2016 comes and boom. I was like, nope, this ain't going nowhere. Um, So. Highly recommend the film. The film speaks to so much of uh, what is going on right now in our in our community. I mean, you know this. Yeah, I I just think that, you know, the reality of where we find ourselves is so much of where we've been finding ourselves as ethnic minorities, as black people, brown people in this country, uh, and just kind of at the back of the bus. Um, And so I won't get too deep into that. My guest this week is going to hopefully lift us up a little bit. Um, I'll get to him here in a minute. Um, But uh, yeah, I just kind of wanted to go in a little bit on that film. Um, There's so much... Uh, to the background of that particular film and so much to say, um, it is a 3D representation of of the things that we have in this world uh, that are still present and that we're still fighting and pushing up against. Um, and so I, I recommend it Go see that um, And then maybe go see School Days Some of them early works of uh, of Spike uh, But just know the movie is very rich which you should, And I guess that's what I was saying Before you should go Pause on this Go rent the movie And then come back And listen to this introduction Oh my goodness Um. Well, let me get to today's guest Because woo, Today's guest I have worked uh, Toiled To get uh, Brother Dr. Jose Francisco Morales Torres To this um, To this show And finally, we were able to connect. We met years back, of course, through AAR. Uh, A lot of good friends, a lot of good people I've known uh, through that organization. And so... he was, yeah, he was. He he connected. I think at the time he was just finishing up his MDiv um, and beginning to start the PhD hunt. Uh, and uh, known through that, he is now a professor of Latinx studies and religion out at Chicago Theological Seminary. Uh, he's renowned for his work. He's a DJ. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a good friend. Uh, this is brother, brother Jose, and he has a great sense of humor. If you ever get a chance to hang out with him, I highly recommend it. Um he's got some he's got some good insight he's very witty um uh, with with that um so yes he was uh let's see he came to it looks like he came to CTS in July of 2020. Uh, Morales is a historical and comparative theologian who places historical voices into conversation with the historically marginalized voices Within and beyond the Christian tradition, uh, often radical rearticulations of the affirmations of faith for today's reality. So his, he has a whole bunch of different areas of research, which include uh, comparative approaches to historical theology, uh, liberation theologies, liber- uh, theological anth- uh, anthropology, the development of Christian doctrines and global perspectives, and of course, a history... Of Latin American philosophy, um, I was so excited to finally bring him on uh, the show. Uh, Dr. Morales is an amazing brother, and we had a chance to sit down and talk a little bit about his new book, which you'll get into here, and just to hear more about just who he was and he is, and how he got into this line of work. So hopefully, you enjoy this conversation, and uh, you know maybe you're, this is your Christmas day because I'm you know I'm recording this near uh, Christmas of the year of our Lord 2023. Uh, this is your Christmas podcast, so um, happy holidays, right, if if that's what you celebrate. If not, hopefully you're not too depressed, because these times can be real <laughs> depressing. All right, fam, enjoy this conversation. Check it.
0: That ain't me. I don't know who the fuck that is and presumably better knees too you know <laughs> presumably better knees yeah <laughs> no, no no slip discs like uh, uncle elroy <laughs>
1: oh I man i slipped my disc <laughs> oh that is the truth man well listen brother um i appreciate you coming on the show um i'm glad to finally have you here i'm going to ask the question that i ask everybody at the first man what's been happening from birth to now man what's been going on with you brother
0: oh man i know Man, you're asking a question. How long, How much time we got? Because
1: this is going to take a minute.
0: But you know, I'm I'm a I'm a proud proud uh, product of Puerto Rico. Come on. Uh, but uh, I've actually never lived a long time in Puerto Rico. Because shortly after being born, my parents, who were missionaries, Pentecostal missionaries, okay. moved to moved to Venezuela. Okay. So actually, my first memories are in Caracas, Venezuela. Okay. Um, and so we we moved there and then um, made a pit stop uh, in Puerto Rico before my dad was called to pastor in Lorain, Ohio, which okay. many people might not know Lorain, but it's about, about a half hour west of Cleveland. And it used to be the largest Puerto Rican diaspora mm. between Chicago and New York. Really? It's no longer that, okay. but it used to be. Okay. Um, I think when the steel plant closed, And the Ford plant kind of reduced its numbers or moved. I don't know exactly. So that number dwindled. uh, But there's still a Puerto Rican presence, both in Cleveland and in Lorraine. And then, interestingly, here's where it gets kind of funky. We were moving west to California, to Northern California, to be with your people. Um, (laughs) And uh, even though Northern California is probably not your people. but (laughs) uh, I got people up there. Okay, 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 good, good. Um, but that was 1989. Okay. That was that big that was that big earthquake, the earthquake. That hit during the
1: World Series. Yeah, that was
0: my first one and, that I was
1: in, the Loma Prieta,
0: man. Okay, okay. So you know, <laughs> and we were supposed to move out there. Okay. And we had stopped in, in Chicago for two weeks. Okay. And uh uh, but something happened to the house we were gonna rent or whatever, and so my dad had to kind of put a pause on our move. And we stayed in Chicago for, well, 21 years. Wow. So, so, uh, (laughs) you know, if, if you're into divine providence, you can call it that I'm not going to go there, but, um, it, it became, it meant that I wasn't a Californian. I became a Chicagoan. Okay. Okay. Uh, And for me, I think that that's, I always tell people, uh, my blood is from Puerto Rico, but my heart's from Chicago. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, and it happened in this event that wasn't, I mean, we weren't supposed to be Chicagoans. Got it. Um, so, so I ended up growing up in the South side of Chicago, uh, the part that tourists don't like to go to. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And so, and so, um, So we were, I grew up there, product of the Chicago public school system, proud product of the Chicago public school system. Went to school in the suburbs, uh, out in Elgin, Illinois. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, along the way got a, a bachelor's degree in Elgin and got my master's of divinity at McCormick theological seminary. During that time, uh, I'm not going to say I left the Pentecostals. It might be that the Pentecostals left me. I I don't know. (laughs) That's still up for debate, you know, (laughs) Um, but fortunately I found a home in a denomination that I think appreciates, um, who I am and what I bring. So, um, with the disciples of Christ now, uh, again, another kind of fortuitous thing that was supposed to be just a field education opportunity Uh, for those people who know about, um, masters of divinities, you're supposed to do like a year of like a practicum Mm -hmm. and that year turned to, Almost, uh, almost seven years of ministry in the, okay. in the Disciples of Christ congregation uh, in Northwest Indiana, and so uh, yeah, all these moments for me are just weird because you know it's I, I my story is one of this is not supposed to happen, but it happened and it proves to be kind of formative. So you yeah, the 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 uh, Chicago piece and 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 uh, the in many cases a, a lot of things are, are that. So, uh, we spent, I spent 21 years, got my master's degree at McCormick. Um, and then eventually was called to be, but we don't have bishops in the denomination, but we have regional ministers. And so okay. I like to say, they're like, they're bishops with no Bishop power whatsoever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so the city boy from the South side of Chicago calls to be the regional minister of the central Rocky mountain region, mm-hmm. which is, I hope you're sitting down here, Colorado. Wyoming, Utah, Northern New Mexico, and Southeast Idaho. Now, if there's any Oof. difference between me and any part of the country, <laughs> it might be that. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> right.
0: So I did that uh, for four and a half years and it actually was a, a wonderful time. Okay, uh, I'll never do that again. It's, it's hard work, but it was, yeah. uh, nonetheless, a lot of time, the hard work is the rewarding work. Um, and then um I had I got married while I was in Denver. And since my spouse followed me to to Denver, which was the home base for that region, I said, you know, it's my turn to follow you. And she got a call to really your stomping grounds at this point, Southern California. Okay. And it was her who said, you know, and while I'm down there, you, should, you might as well just get your Ph.D., um, you know, real encouragement. So I went to Claremont School of Theology. Yeah. And got, got my degree in comparative theology and philosophy. And I'm not going to say the rest is history because I think we're living it. Uh, yeah. But but uh, really found my my call there in a sense uh, when I was a local pastor, when I was a community organizer, when I was a regional minister. Yeah. I was always known as the teacher, right? People mm-hmm. say, oh no, he, they would even call me professor, which you know, I take that title very seriously. So I didn't yeah. I didn't call my I didn't call myself that, but people say hey, the professor's in. Um so clearly there was um, in the Christian tradition we talk about vocation. Clearly mm-hmm. that's the vocation for me. And so uh I finally found the office professor that matches the vocation teaching perfectly. Because all the other offices, regional minister, pastor, There is a teaching element, so there's some overlap, but I think now I'm in almost that one-for-one connection between what I'm called to do and where I'm called to do it. Uh, And so uh, now I'm at uh, Chicago Theological Seminary here in Chicago, uh, teaching Latinx studies and religion, uh, and I'm having a good time, I think.
1: Yeah, it it sounds like it, man. Now, remind me again, because you worked with, was Monica Coleman your uh, advisor? she
0: was not my advisor okay. but i
1: was her ta
0: okay and she was a mentor of mine uh and still very supportive And i think the world of, of monica coleman my advisor was actually a, a gentleman by the name of philip clayton oh okay Who's really uh yeah Who's really a big name in the religion and science stuff okay uh and so he really got me involved into the religions and science stuff um a, a big piece that i forgot to mention maybe i didn't forget to mention i just want to kind of leave it Kind of floating over the top. But all along those travels, probably since Chicago, I started DJing. Um, yeah, come on I'm from, now. I'm, I'm from Chicago, so I'm a house head. I'm Chicago <laughs> house cat. And so, though I will admit that I am shaped as much by detroit techno as i am by okay. chicago house okay but i've been djing since 96 wow and and still yeah i'm i'm an, I'm an old timer at this point um <laughs>
2: yeah, and right. so
0: i've been djing i've had residencies in chicago and denver um uh was a rave dj at one point so you know djing okay Barns and factories and uh, all, a bunch of all kind of nondescript uh, places that uh, that the authorities didn't know about. Uh, but but yeah, so that's still part of who I am. um uh, It's it's part of my heart and part of what I do to um cut loose, yeah, yeah. release pressure, uh, enjoy life. And so yeah, so that's part of who I am. Yeah. And obviously. Um, I don't keep it uh, completely separate from everything else I do. And so um, so in some ways, uh, my thinking is shaped by DJing. My preaching is shaped by DJing uh, in some way. So yeah, there, there's that. And I think we have mutual friends uh, who, uh, with whom I've DJed. Um, and so yeah, so that that's a part of who I am. Um, I, I'm a house head. Just in case you doubted
1: that I'm a true Chicagoan, I
0: went ahead and put the house music on top of that. And, and at this point, you, you can't you can't take that Chicago card away from me.
1: I hear that, man. No, I hear that. No, I remember you doing some things at AAR um, one of the one of the years, man. You you was up there. I think John was doing something as well, man. I was like, yeah, oh man, yeah. Jose got the he got the skills, man.
0: The yeah, skills. we 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 got them nerds dancing for one night. <laughs> it, was, it was great. Uh, yeah. It was great. That was a good time. That was a good time. Yeah, it
1: was a trip to see Dr. Willie Jennings, you know, trying to cut it up on the on the carpet, man. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good, good. <laughs> yeah, we, we
0: saw some people who we thought weren't limber, and they were quite limber <laughs> on the dance floor. So my, my kudos to, to the OGs who, who still got the moves. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: that's what's up, man. So, so tell yeah. me this, man. I mean, why the Academy, man? It sounds like you had the pastoral thing going. Um, why the Academy? <laughs> Me, why something like this? And then ultimately, I'd also be curious, what's been your experience like? You know, being now a professor, um, teaching classes, all those things, man. Especially in this, you know, this era that we find ourselves in, man. I know you had mentioned in one of the texts you were helping some uh, some Venezuela migrant families. but My family and I were do we doing the same thing out here um, in the parks of Oak. Um, and so you yeah. know, you got you have that element right, and then you also have. Well, here in Chicago, at least in Illinois, in general, I mean, especially with a, a Democratic governor, it hasn't necessarily been as much of a struggle as it's been like in other states. You think about,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: you know, even just to the you yeah. know next to us in Idaho, oh, not Idaho, but Indiana and stuff, and and, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, places yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. But, anyways, that's that's the question. Long, long-winded question.
0: No, no, right. I hear that. So, uh, let me start with the academy piece there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as, as I said, um, it's clear that folks have always seen me as a teacher and Martin Luther always talked about that. We all have one vocation, but we fulfill the vocation in different offices okay. and offices being in a figurative sense, not literal cubicle or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I tweak his assertion a little bit, um, cause he says the, the, the vocation is to glorify God, if you will. Okay. Um, but I do think we have different vocations. I think there's teachers. I think there's, um, um, people who design, people in the arts, um, uh, et cetera, uh, I do think that we can fulfill our calling and vocation in many offices. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I was fulfilling that vocation as a regional minister, as a community organizer while I was a pastor in Hammond, Indiana. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have found a really good kind of overlap, almost like I said, a one-for-one one parallel yeah. between my office and my vocation, because we want to teach. Uh, not only am I teaching, I'm also teaching future teachers. Yeah. And, and you know, because I've got PhD students and that that for me is my joy. I'm teaching future pastors who will be teachers because mm-hmm. I don't joke around with that. I say, if you're going to be a, a pastor or a religious leader, you better teach what you're doing. Um, you, you know a lot of folks don't teach <laughs> um, yeah. and, and then the PhD students most of those are hoping to get into Academia as well so uh but yeah so I I, I can legitimately say that I am where I need to be um uh, and I I I am really grateful for that because um you and I both know folks who uh PhD, probably smarter than you and me at least smarter than me who haven't landed anything. Right. Um, right. Uh, you know, faculties are shrinking everywhere and these are smart folks who who are brilliant teachers. I mean, I know them to be, um, brilliant teachers. And so I'm grateful that, uh, that I'm not in that situation, even while I grieve with my friends as they and my colleagues, as they seek to find somewhere where they can meaningfully live what, what they train for. Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, I think in Chicago, and and like Chicago Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. which is a school that has a history of being the first, the first to have uh, African American students, the first to um, support unions, the first. So we have a long history of social justice. Uh, uh, you know me helping a migrant family, it helps my <laughs> my standing in institution. Doesn't hurt it. I don't. Thank God, I don't work in some institution where. You know, you got to do that, you know, in clandestine ways because you don't want to get, you don't want the word out and then you have to be in the dean's office or something. That's (laughs) that's not my situation. Um, I'm in a situation where we, our school, you know, expects uh, all of us to kind of not just embody intellectual rigor and um, the best of critical inquiry, but also to embody a compassionate heart uh hands ready to do the work of justice mm-hmm. uh, so again um I, I i'm sure there's places where people can complain but uh, not not me not at this not at this juncture uh, yeah in in my life so, yeah um, i'm grateful for
1: that no man that's good i was i was very happy for you man when you landed at cts man i think you know a lot of great folks have have, have come through that you know that spike that space and place um and whatnot so i'm i'm glad um. So let me ask you this. How then do you, in the academy, as a thinker, as a researcher, as a man of faith, how do you keep faith? How do you keep this connection, man? I mean, especially in this day and age, right? I mean, you have AI. We had this whole discussion in one of my classes the other day about, you know, how AI can really fool you into thinking, you know, there's something something else going on and stuff, man. And, you know, and not just in, in text, but also in, in picture. Right. I mean, AI is constantly getting better Mm -hmm. at how it produces a picture, right. Or how it puts a picture out and whatnot and get you to think that John F. Kennedy shook hands with Superman. Right. Um, right, 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 right. But how do you, man, in, in this, in this age of information, it's everywhere, man. How do you, how do you walk that line? Especially when cats are like, man, you know, Religion is at the root of so many conflicts, man. It's killed folks. I mean, you think about you know just how it's yeah. happening in Palestine and Israel right now, yeah, right? You yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How do you? Yeah. How do you? How do you? How do you engage with with you know with some of these conversations in regards to that? Or maybe maybe it's not. Maybe it's not happening in the co- in the classroom. I don't know. You 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 break it down. It, it
0: is. It is. And I'll start with just personally my own faith, <clears throat> and then I'll move into some of these other pieces you mentioned. I, I always like to tell people. Um, you know, I, I'm trained in theology and philosophy, and I think philosophy after Descartes, um, okay. you know, has built in it a, like a, a an insatiable kind of criticism to break things down. And so if it, philosophy has a way to kind of, at the very least, it can steal your faith from you if you let it. Right. Mm. Um, because it's built with that deep criticism. I've actually appreciated that um, because I think, as I always say, sometimes you have to doubt Santa Claus to believe in the generosity of your parents,
2: right? You have
0: to, sometimes you have to go through some re- critical rigor to say, you know, this Santa Claus faith isn't working Yeah. and it has to be broken down so that then something better, i.e. the generosity of your parents can come through. Right? So, uh, I tell people I am fifty-one percent theist, like, yeah, uh, yeah, and forty-nine percent agnostic. And but then I also say I think that agnosticism is good, right? Because if we're too sure of the God we're proclaiming, then that's not the God we should be proclaiming. That mm. that's just okay. There, there needs to be the way we talk about God needs to have doubt built into it. Yeah. Um, there's uh, two UCC pastors that wrote this wonderful youth book. Uh, it was it's a compilation of letters they wrote to their kids as they were going off to college and there's a there's a letter chapter letter in the book about doubt and I can't remember which of the two pastors wrote this piece but one of them said that the the bigger your faith the larger the shadow casted by faith which is doubt mm-hmm. so this belief that the greater your faith the greater your doubt um, that doubt needs to grow with faith in some way. Um, and so I, I abide by that principle that if I am too sure of this faith, I proclaim that it's not really a faith worth proclaiming. Um, so for me, that that's where that comes. Um, so I think that also then applies to, you know, AI and the situation in which we're living in, in terms of religious wars, I just start by naming the fact that they're right. (laughs) Um, You know, we don't we don't do ourselves any favors by pretending, oh, no, it was those folks weren't really Christian. No, they said they were Christians. They were baptized in the church. They presumably read their Bibles or at least had some priest or preacher tell them about the Bible. And they still did these awful things. Um, One of my colleagues at CTS is uh, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikva she Mm. recently wrote a book called dangerous religious ideas okay and the premise of the book is not that there are some ideas in religions that are dangerous her argument is that religious ideas as such are dangerous and that they're capable for great transformation but also capable of great trauma Mm. and damage Mm. and so she she's not arguing that oh Um, belief in the Trinity is okay, but belief in the incarnate whatever is not. Like that's not, she's not parsing out bad ideas from good ideas. She's saying that the nature of religious belief is a dangerous enterprise from the start. And so there needs to be ways in which we check ourselves. And she does this by comparing uh, her own faith, Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam. Not so much comparing, but showing how these three religions have endured because they have self-correcting mechanisms built in. Mm. And, and even if it takes them a while and while it takes them that while they do a lot of damage, there's still this corrective mechanism. And so I think it, it does us a uh, disfavor to say, well, that's not them. That's them, not us. And they're not really Christian. We just need to admit that holding faith is a dangerous enterprise. Yeah, And so it requires us a community It requires a set of rituals that that ground us. It requires us uh, times of introspection and and prayer. Uh, uh, It it requires spiritual discernment. It requires a whole lot of pieces to make sure that wonderfully beautiful creeds of faith don't become weapons of war. Mm. And the truth is, they do become weapons of war. We don't have to go as far as Israel-Palestine um i remember hearing i remember hearing cornell west many years ago um he's making some commentary and about 9 11 and he was saying that a lot of people were saying that this is the first time americans get attacked um for being americans by religious zealots and his response was no it ain't the ku klux (laughs) klan has been around for a minute Right. right and it attacked black americans for who they were right, based on religious grounds. So it's, it's always there. And so I think it's important to name that holding belief is dangerous. And so it requires these, it requires me and you hanging out at AR or maybe, you know, uh, in the backyard, grilling some food and just kind of, you know, good old proverbs is iron sharpens iron. Yeah, Us keeping each other honest um yeah. it requires that kind of it's it's a and it's a life work uh to quote Faith is a life work it's a, it's a, the work of a lifetime i think it's the exact phrase and so so that in terms of ai um it, i think we're still early into the effects of this sure yeah, um yeah. And, and i want to hope that if there's any good that comes out of it i i don't even remember when um Microsoft Word and other word processing documents started correcting our misspell words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or putting the wiggly line. Some people thought that that was going to help people write worse, but actually it ended up being that people are writing better. Yeah. So that I learn how to spell words because I misspelled them first, right? Yeah. And then, and then, and then the little paper clip. I remember that.
1: Yeah. A little
0: paper clip on it. Whatever his name was, I'll, I'll call him Clippy. There and used Clippy to be like,
1: people forget there actually used to be a whole suite of those icons. You could switch it to a dog, a yeah. uh, yeah, you know yeah, horse yeah. or whatever. But the paperclip is yeah. the is the most popular one. But yeah, I remember that. No,
0: paper paperclip is the OG. Yeah, I mean, he right. started it all. Yeah, he's yeah he's 1973 hip hop. You know, uh, so uh, <laughs> so he uh, he's uh, so yeah. So it helped people write better. And as a professor, um, I would hope that it, if if people dabble in that, it would at least help them write better. Again, <laughs> I might be naive, and I'm okay with being naive at the moment. I, I also think that um, theology is always self-involving. And what I mean by that is, whenever you say something about God, you're saying something about yourself. You can't avoid it. And I always go to the the parable or the, the story where Jesus asks uh, the disciples, who do you say that I am? Uh, it's important that it's phrased that way because he doesn't say, who am I? Who, who am I? He says, who do you say that I am? So in the confession, we say something about ourselves. You know, the creeds don't say, God is the creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible to visible. It says, we believe.
2: Mm.
0: Right, so theology is always self-involving. So I think it's going to be hard for AI to do to help you as a student do self-reflection about yourself. And so as long as we're including that self-evolving dimension in theology, yeah, then there's going to be a piece that AI can't do. Because AR can't be so far. AI can't get into your heart. Uh, uh, can't get into your, so whatever you want to call the in- interiority of your being, can't get in there and, and speak your words. You have to do that. So, um, my, my assignments always ha- make sure that that self-involving component yeah uh, comes through, uh, and it's part of the, the enterprise. And I think that's also a way to keep it honest, right. And a way to not keep it dangerous, um, because then you don't put it out here. Some faith that's out beyond you, it's a faith that includes you and so for you to do damage to it uh through it is mm-hmm. to do damage to yourself yeah yeah so so i so ai i mean we'll see and in, in terms of picture I, I mean i hope it makes me look better you know
1: <laughs> <laughs> i've just <laughs> seen a new app that said it the ai can create a new headshot for you. You take a couple pictures yeah. of yourself, and then it gets you. You know, it makes you look all pro and professional and everything. <laughs> well, listen. I, I'm. I'm going to tell me the name. I'm going to download it right now. <laughs> um. Well, let me ask you this, man. You talk about activism and being, you know, an organizer and stuff like that, man. Where Where do you find ourselves right now, man? What is What is working? What is not? Um. And I ask this question genuinely out of sincerity, man. I mean, I last yeah. year it hit me you know, 30 years after the LA uprisings and, you know, here we are 30 years later. And I remember, and I've said this on the show before. So those listening, you know, you'll hear me say it a lot, but you know, it's like, you know, I remember an old cat telling me like, Oh man, these change takes time. Change takes time. And I remember buying into that and thinking, okay, yeah, give it 30 years and we'll be in a different spot and 30 years have passed. And here we are in in a worse spot. Um, and it almost seems like, police brutality man they didn't even kill rodney king they just beat his ass you know what i'm saying now yeah, we got oh cops God, yeah, yeah. just out doing with no accountability right it's like it's it's yeah, and it's a daily shoot. thing yeah. so i mean what, what what do you see i mean i see people you know it's like oh go call your mm-hmm. senator this and we'll you need to cease fire this and oh will cease fire yeah. that what 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 do you see working what do you see not man i mean where, where do we find ourselves these days is as, as uh the arc of, uh, what is it? The arc of justice, the arc of, uh, you know, where, where's yeah, it bending buddy. right now?
0: Yeah. Well, let me, let me start by reiterating that I'm, uh, 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 49% agnostic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I, and I think the unfolding of history has something to do with that. Um, I, I also do think, um, and particularly this is an issue among liberals because I think a lot of conservatives who are, uh, la- rapture happy people don't have this issue. They have a, a, an opposite problem. Um, I, think, I think we have to drop the belief that progress is automatic. Um, that it just takes time, right? Uh, yeah. Time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. Um, uh, time and reflection and therapy heals all wounds. Uh, there's, there's an agency that's required. You can't just sit back and wait time to do it. Um, and so I think we're all products of Hegel and maybe marks in some way that we just believe that progress that we always progress for the better. And that's just not true. Um, um, it's just not period. Um, just look at any part of the world, any 500 year window of that world. And you'll see that it has its ups and downs. So I think we need to let go. And I think a lot of people hold this and don't even know they hold this. We need to just let go of the fact that we just, think that progress automatically happens. Like, I'm sick and tired of people saying, oh, if we're going to deal with racism, just look at our young uh, and how they've overcome it. No, they haven't.
2: Right, right, Um, right. There's
0: plenty plenty (laughs) of uh, 12-year-old racists. Right. Uh, We've seen them on TV. Right. Um, 18-year-old kids who indiscriminately shoot people and then get away with, it. you know, that Rittenhouse or whatever, that guy. Uh, Yeah. You know, um, uh, we went from Obama, who wasn't perfect, but he was better than the guy who followed him, um, right. you know, in the larger scheme of things. Um, so we need to let go of the fact that the progress, that no matter what happens, we always progress for the better. No, we progress on the better when we actually fight for it. Um, so I think having an active faith and active life is what's required of this. And recognizing that you're gonna lose more times than you win. And that's hard for us because we're used to instant gratification. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it just takes a while. I also think, um, I'm gonna say this and it's gonna sound odd, like I say this, I think Republican idea, not the Republican ideology we have today, but the classical one Yeah, that prefers the local over the, the national. I think there's some truth there in the sense that I do think the best activism begins locally
2: oh yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah. Uh, uh, boots on the ground yeah you're not gonna get a lot of stuff done in dc that's just the way it is right um one of our i think leading religious figures now is william barber uh the great activist there in north carolina who's disciples of christ right and oh, uh, i didn't know that his, yeah his pullout, he ignores dc altogether his thing is you start with the state houses and you work down to the local jurisdictions and up to national, um, but you you start with the state houses. So I think in terms of a practical kind of organizing piece, it really does start in your backyard, um, that sort of local politics. And I think progressive, liberal, whatever term use, aren't always great at the local stuff. Uh, we like to write letters to senators who won't read them. Right, um, who who already decided what they're going to vote because the money in their pocket tells them who to vote for or what to vote for, and I think the best bet is to start locally. So, can my neighborhood open housing for the migrants coming from Venezuela? We're well, really coming from Texas and Florida who get bused here for political points.
2: Yeah, but yeah.
0: but can we start there, right? And could then we push the mayor's office to do something different? Um, could we talk to state? Like, so I I think there's something to be said about this priority of local politics that we need to get to, because I I really uh, lost a lot of hope in national policy um, impacting the South side of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, uh, and less so impacting downstate Illinois, right? Downstate Illinois has its own politics and, and their own concerns, right? I mean, uh, people have to eat. So I'm, I, you know, in many ways, I appreciate downstate because Chicago might fund all the programs with our taxes, but they feed us, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And we, to, and we need to we need to love on our farmers and what they do, um, and be more appreciative of farmers than we are of of, of um, mortgage brokers and Wall Street folk, um, because at the end of the day, people need to eat yeah Um, yeah so so i think starting locally i think it's um my my approach um and it doesn't mean that you don't get involved in a national level sure um and nothing's greater than um establishing policies that for example protect the rights of women um protect the rights of uh, lgbtqia folk um of course let's do that and um, there are people hurting right around the corner from your house, right. Uh, who, who will need long before, uh, a policy get passed, they might die of hunger or in Chicago of cold, right. Mm-hmm. And so our, our work should look, um, more so on the soil on which we stand than on the monuments in DC. Mm. And, and so for me, that's, that's important. And going in, recognizing that you're going to lose more often than you win. And that even if you lose, you can still feed somebody. You yeah. can still buy somebody a coat. Yeah. Um. Even while we try to affect policy changes so that that person doesn't have to depend on us for a coat. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, that's, uh, that's real for me um you know that we need to start locally and and it's real for me that it's a depressive kind of enterprise i mean mm. it's it's hard to beat money it just is <laughs> it and, is yeah uh, yeah yeah ma- yeah jesus called him mammon mammon will win nine nine times out of ten and 99 times out of 100 but that one victory um can have really good positive effects if we stick to it so i mean that's that's sort of where I'm at. Yeah, um, and it's it's not happy go lucky, but you know, you 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 Miguel de la Torre, who's a mentor and a friend now, um, you know, he wrote this book, Embracing Hopelessness.
2: Yeah, yes, yeah. Um,
0: and and I assigned that in class. Yeah, um, and boy, it, it pisses off students, and I'm glad. But the, the <laughs> idea is that you, you know that we use hope in a kind of in like an opium to to quote Marx here. Yeah. Oh, you just gotta have hope. You gotta and it doesn't do anything. So he says you gotta embrace hopelessness. And then he says, we need an ethics para joder to, to fuck with, right? <laughs> this 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 yeah. ethics to just to mess things up. The other scholar, he's my theologian I go to. There's a philosopher by the name of McBride, uh, who does he works out of the pragmatist tradition and he talks about insurrectionist ethics, and he says that the goal is similar to de la torre, just to disrupt. Um, so, cause we're not going to win, but if we can disrupt, uh, enough disruption might get us a, a minor victory. And so I think that that's where I'm at, um, ethics, but I and insurrectionist I ethics. Though so I know the word insurrectionist has taken a, a nasty turn with January 6th, but I still want to claim the disruptive quality yeah. of, 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 of ruffling the feathers and cramping people's style.
1: I'm glad know. yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh Miguel de la Torre. I, I love him as well, man. He's got some good stuff and that particular book uh is is something that kind of, you know, reframed how I looked at, you know, theologically, how I looked at hope, how I looked at progress. And I appreciated what he said. I remember I, I, I even forget where I heard him give this lecture about, you know, just the you know, you talked about throwing monkey wrenches into the system and you know, like you said, that yeah, right. just disruption and everything. And so that that has that has resonated with me. Um yeah quite a bit, especially in this era, right? I mean, we got to, yeah. at least at the time of recording right now, you know, uh, we got a year, less than a year before the big election in 2024. And, you know, yeah. things uh, th- things, are things are looking interesting, you know, when you think about yeah, right. the Republican primaries, you know, um, and Trump doesn't even show up and he's still leading in the polls. And so yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. it'll be fascinating to see where we're at, you know, one year from now. Um, oh God. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. With where we stand. Um on, and on the heels of that when you know with climate change and and you know and you yeah. know just excessive corporate greed. You think about GMOs. Yeah. What did they approve they got now? GMO uh meat. Now meat grown yeah, in a oh lab and stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, goodness gracious. and <laughs> cat
0: Cat Williams called it clone meat. Yes. <laughs> one yes. of the stand ups, clone meat. We uh, put the garlic in already.
1: <laughs> I tell yeah, you. buddy. I tell you, man. So yeah, no, yeah. but I appreciate what you're saying and I appreciate just that that perspective. That's good, man. I appreciate that. Um well let me ask you about your book, man. What 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 you got on the table for us and what you got, you know, that uh that you yeah. putting out there. I know it was nominated for uh what is it in the, uh it was it's it H T I was it they nominated yeah, it for Book of the that- Year?
0: Yeah, Hispanic Theological Initiative Book of the Year. I, obviously, I didn't get it. The person who got it deserved the uh, the prize. Uh, she and I finished uh, our PhDs around the same time. I know what that project was all about. And so it's a, a wonderful uh, text. So Marlene Ferreira's uh, Felicidades, congratulations. She wrote a fabulous text. Uh, but yeah, no, but even just to be nominated by the Hispanic Theological Initiative, it's, it's quite the honor. Um, yeah, my book is called wonder as a new starting point for theological anthropology opened by the world and it's out on Lexington books. Um, and yeah, that's the book that came out this year. Uh, and obviously publisher or perish. So I'm working on books two and three now, but, yes, sir. Uh, but this one, this one's been a joy to write. Um, uh, in some ways is an outgrowth of the, my doctoral work, but it, it had some substantial changes. Um, but yeah, I, um, I, I wanted to, uh, uh, address the ways in which the human being has been flattened mm. by, by the neoliberal capitalist worldview. Ooh, and so we, we have, we have been human beings have been turned to human doers. Yeah. So we're, we're we are ranked and judged by what we do and not by who we are. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what we do, it becomes commodity to be traded in the market um, with with or without our consent, Mm -hmm. um, with the surplus going to somebody else and not us. And then not only is our product turned into a commodity, but we ourselves are turned into commodity. Mm -hmm. And so the premise of the book is could we grasp onto something of what it means to be human that can't be grasped and manipulated by the powers. And that's where this notion of wonder comes in. Because uh, as I argue the book, wonder is not something that we can grasp. Like we can't say, like you can't say, Hey, I'm going to wonder. I'm going to be in awe now. (laughs) Wonder hits you. Yeah. Uh, And in the event of wonder, you're not the agent. Hmm. you're you're the object. So if a scenery is grasping you in awe, you're not doing any grasping. The scenery is doing all the grasping. If my daughter, uh, this resilient Puerto Rican girl, comes home with a big smile, talking about her great grades and how she made friends or how she stood up to a bully, I'm like, I'm in awe of my daughter. I'm not the actor in that moment. She is or her her, her witnesses, whatever. So I realized since ca- uh, our neo-capitalist ways likes to grab everything and manipulate it for its own purposes, could we grab grab onto something of the human that can't be manipulated? And for me, that's wonder. And so I start from there and then develop a definition of wonder where I reverse the roles of subject and object. Like we have no agency in wonder. We have zero, agency. we can't dictate when wonder happens, and when it happens, we can dictate how long it's going to stay. And so from there, uh, build a kind of theological anthropology that reverses what 1800s and 1900s German theologians did, which they talked about open to the world, which seems what I'm saying, but for them, it was open to the world means that you're allowed to open the world, that you're allowed to split it open and check it out and study it. And that's still agency, right? Mm, Yeah. And, and, and venture capitalists know how to open to the world too, right? They know how to deforest Brazil and they know how to, so (laughs) I said, this is not what I need. And I said, wonder is not open to the world, but opened by the world. So that the other acts on us. And what does it mean to be open that way to maintain an open posture towards the world so that the event of wonder might transform us. So that's the, the gist of the book, and then obviously I do some ethics of wonder, and I talk uh, about four ethical postures that I think grow out of what we learn of wonder. And that's the, the posture of sustainability, mm, uh, the okay. ethical posture, the ethical posture of uh, solidarity, okay, uh, the, the posture of vulnerability, and then the posture of liberation, which is in many ways a synthesis of sustainability solidarity and vulnerability and so uh, that's the book I that's a crash course on the book yeah and I would tell I will tell folks to buy it but be prepared to <laughs> to put a dent in your wallet but uh <laughs> find, find it find it at your local bookstore uh, or at your local library and check it out if you like
1: yeah, no, man, I appreciate that. And, again, apologies that I had not gotten a chance to to read it uh, prior. I'm going to definitely hit up Lexington. Uh, I've been hitting up a lot of these publishers to be like, hey, man, we got your author on the podcast. Uh, send me a book. Uh, and so, yeah, we uh, go. you know what I'm saying? Um, but I appreciate you you breaking that down, man. I knew I wanted to read it because I was just like, well, whatever Jose's got to say, man, I, 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 I got to go read that and stuff, man. So I'll definitely I put the it. link. In the show notes, um, because I think this, I think this stuff is important, and, and I agree with you, man. I mean, I, I still can't afford my first book. I mean, it's still a hundred nine hundred fifteen dollars. I'm like, God Seriously. damn, man, this is crazy, <laughs> right, right. man. man um,
0: it's bad when the author can't
1: buy his own book, right? Right, uh, right, and that's that deserves a whole other conversation. But I, you know, right. I think these things need to get out there i mean one of the things that i try to do you know particularly with some of the local libraries here is is to get these types of books in there so that we can at least have yeah. folks go and check them out yeah. you know yeah, read yeah, them yeah, here yeah, yeah. at least i'm in oak park on the out here on the on the west over here on the west side not the full west side but the west side of the city um and so you know they don't they don't have uh what is it uh, late fees anymore here at the at our local libraries which is which is nice oh, nice So I try to make sure they get a few copies in there um, of different books and different authors and stuff, man. So I appreciate that, man. Um, I know time is nigh. I know you got a family and uh, you got things going on and I, and that's why I love Mm. about you, man. I, I appreciate that. When you say, Oh man, my wife is doing this or my kids doing that. I can relate because I think so much of, Right. I mean, I appreciate that's what I like about being in the academy and being able to set up my own. I've never been a nine to five type of guy, even in in all of my career, all of my career, even when I before I got into the academy. You know, I was working construction. I built homes. It was just like I didn't want to be in the office. I wanted to either be outside or I wanted to be doing going somewhere Um, because I think that I don't know the nuance of. Of, of doing what we do and you got a family and being connected to that, man. Yeah. But let me ask you this, man, um, let's end on this. Uh, where do you see uh, us as, and when I say us, I mean, societally speaking, where do you see us going in the next 10 years? When you look up and it's 2033, the end of 2033, where do you see us, brother? What, what you see I, you know I know you're not a, a full futurologist but I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on no, you right no. now man start prophesying no, come no, on
0: no, no. No, I know that the, the prophet wants to be profitable but that, but <laughs> yeah, that's not that's... that's not working for me um come on you know you know I am uh in terms of my philosophical Contours I'm a bit of an existentialist an existentialist and the and of the Spanish variety the very first philosophy book I read cover the cover was Miguel de Unamuno's tragic sense of life okay and and so I, I have a bit of a bleak but I think honest view of what we're capable of and and so I I don't come into uh situations or into the world gullible thinking oh yeah you know we're yeah. gonna end with the, us walking into the sunset so uh, and I think that's helpful. Um, back to ano- Unamuno. He says in that book, "Tragic Sense of Life." He argues that we lie to ourselves when we say we live victory to victory, or, as he says, epic to epic. Mm. He says, he says, "We actually live tragedy to tragedy." And he says, and I say this because even when we choose better from good, or we choose good over bad, something dies in that decision. Mm. Something dies in that decision. So every decision is a tragedy. So in many ways, he's, he's confronting Hegel here, who thinks in this kind of moral progress towards the better. Uh, that sounds bleak and dark and how dare you call yourself Christian and think that, but it's profoundly freeing.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Because once you can accept the tragedy of life, then you can just go all in on your uh, on your revolutionary efforts, and you could go all in, recognizing that the tragedy might be an ultimate tragedy with you losing your life, even. But you you're you're not going to let the prospect of tragedy kind of derail you or uh, debilitate you from doing what you need to do, because you already know even when we win, in air quotes, win, there's a tragedy in that one. Something dies. And so I think in the future, I think, uh, if there's any hope for us in the next 10 years, we have to embrace the tragic Mm. in the world Mm. and, and stand in the tragedy of the world. Um, I am not, I don't take lightly the fact that a third of the Psalms are lament songs, a third, 50 of them. And the other a hundred are split over, six sub genres, but a third of lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That kind of lament. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
0: and so I think it's in the laments and the dirges and the tragedies of this world where we need to be, um, recognizing that even just choosing to be there, it's itself a tragedy, but, but if any, uh, dare I be Christian here, (laughs) <laughs> if any resurrection is possible, yeah, it, it's from tombs. It's not from thrones. Ooh. Um, and so I think we're headed for a lot of tragedy. Uh, and with the environment, with I mean, we're rolling back LGBTQI legislation, fair pay legislation. Women have taken a real hard hit with women's rights, just a horrible hit and voting rights are up on the table now. I mean, it's just, so I think we're up for a tragedy. Uh, and I don't want to celebrate that per se, but if there's any hope in the hopelessness is the hope, at least for Christians, as we see it, that the resurrection came out of a tomb and not out of a throne. Hmm. And so we, we stand in those tragedies um in those tragic moments and the faithful albeit naive albeit unlikely hope that there's a resurrection on the other side yeah um, but I I think that's that's the best I can offer and it and it might not be the most glowy <laughs> and they lived happily ever after but no, I think it. it's the most honest and as a result, the most freeing option for us moving forward. But I don't think even if the orange demon doesn't win, we're still in for tragedy. Mm. I, I don't, I don't pin it all on him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we're, even if the person we wanted wins, um, we're, we're still due for tragedies. And, um, but I think, we, we step right into the tragedies mm. and we die there or miraculously we have a early Sunday morning situation. Uh, and, and that's the best we can do. And in the meantime, we love, I love my daughters. I love my spouse, my wife. Um, I love those near me. I good to my neighbors. Um, I try to treat people fairly with dignity, even the ones who hate me. Um, I teach, uh, with a clear conscience. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm rooted in my faith, but not so much so that I can be open, opened by the faith of others from other religious tradition. Yeah. Um, I don't think we own the wisdom of God, the glory of God or whatever language you want to use. Um, so I think, and I go back to that local piece, then how we live our lives day to day in those tragedies. Um, it's a it's a fleeting hope, but it is a hope nonetheless. And so that's where, where I think we're gonna be. And I think that where we have to be, which goes against the way Christianity has been built in this country, which is a Christianity yeah. of of thrones. Yeah. And there's no resurrection in thrones. Um and so part of that is it might be that Christianity has Christianity as we know it has to die. Oof. Uh so that <laughs> A true faith of liberation is born anew in our mates, uh, and I'm I'm okay with burying that Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it has to be, if it has to get buried, let it be buried. Um, it's not doing us any favors. Wow. So. Yeah, so that that's again. Uh, this probably, this is not when you collect the offering. I'm sure <laughs> in the service, <laughs> you only get a good, you only get a few pennies for that. But uh, and you're gonna get the elders say, don't invite this preacher back. <laughs> hey, well, me off, yeah, no, I got plenty of
1: those, man. I got p- definitely <laughs> plenty of those, man. But this brother said there is no resurrection in in thrones, <laughs> man. Nope, no, no. No, I'm with that brother. I really appreciate your time, your energy, your work, and what you're doing, man. I think um, I resonate with it a lot because that's that's where a lot in a lot of those spaces is where I find myself as well. Yeah. Um, but that's 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 real. It's good. It's, it's good having these conversations to kind of be you know realign yeah. of you yeah. know God, theology, divine, and in in, in still in the shit that we in the mire that we find yeah, ourselves course, in. Yeah, of, course, you know? of
0: um, no, and let me just say before you hang up, man. I appreciate you and man who you are, the scholar that you are, the homie that you are, the dad spouse. I mean, you just are really uh, meeting you many moons ago. I want to say Minnesota, we met first. I think uh, so. I think that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's when we. Uh, but but since then, you've been a, a light in this very uh, otherwise gloomy place. And so I wanna I wanna say publicly that I. I appreciate you and think the world of you and I'm glad you're doing oh, this man. and you're continuing to to march on even when there's those around you who want to make you trip.
1: <laughs> man, uh, yeah, but thank you man. I appreciate that man. That that means a lot. Yeah. That means a lot. I appreciate it. Uh working folks find you man if they want to say hey, let's bring this brother out. We need that. We going to give him, you know, a couple of thousand. Give, you maybe give him 15 to 20,000, man. This you know, for <laughs> a new a new research grant, man. Working where can, working where can folks get a hold of <laughs> you at
0: well, you know, I work at Chicago Theological Seminary. You Google that, you'll find me. And of course, I'm on uh, social platforms. Uh, you can find me there as well. But uh, you'll find me around. You know, I'm not. I'm, I don't. I'm not hiding from anybody. So just uh, check out my school, Chicago Theological Seminary. Check out me on social platforms. Um, you'll be able to find me there.
1: Cool. I'll put these in the show notes for anybody watching whitehodgepodcast forward slash profane faith. Click on it. Got all the show notes again. Dr. Morales Torres-Jose, thank you so much for coming on today, brother. Thank
0: you, my brother.
2: We live in
1: an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult
2: recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences will boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode.